not good enough. The fans demand better, right? It's and if you were a league, I like that. I like that his passion kicks up. Like I don't know if you've noticed it. If you've listened to the last couple of podcasts, like a lot of things will happen. Some of his team is like, oh yeah, that's disappointing, whatever. But there's like Concacaf Champions League. Ah. Welcome to episode seven of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast, the podcast of two unqualified idiots rambling on sports topics they likely know nothing about for an indeterminate timeline with a hastily thrown together format. Brought to us this week, copied directly from the IRC channel, hashtag podcast format. I'm Carlos Alcazar, and with me as always is my co-host, Dave Turnbull. Hello, everybody. And once again, Carlos, you have come up with another obscure internet reference, which I do not get. Yes. So today's uh, internet history lesson from Carlos this week is going to be IRC, or Internet Relay Chat. Basically, you would use a program to log into a server which would let you connect to a bunch of different chat rooms. Effectively, it was just a way of connecting. IRC chat rooms still exist. Uh, they're not probably not as prevalent or as common as they were. Another thing they were really good for, though, back in those days, where I think made them a lot more popular, was that you could go to different IRC chat rooms where you could actually download things like, say, MP3s or movies. It was kind of a way of getting in there. Um, not that people would pirate movies or music or anything like that. So now it's just sort of part of the dark web almost? Um, sort of. The truth is you can still download IRC clients. The old one that I used to use in Windows was called MIRC, which still exists. But think about how long this goes back to. MIRC, which wasn't the first IRC chat client, was originally designed in 1995. And it's still ongoing, which is actually very impressive for the internet. It still this exists and there's still been new iterations. So that is your internet history lesson of the week. Now, we've got some items on the program. So we're going to be talking about a little bit about the week four thoughts from the Alliance of American Football, the standard. Uh, we're going to be talking also a little bit about what we're looking forward to in week five. But then we're going to get into some NFL news a little bit. We're going to talk about the Antonio Brown trade that almost happened but didn't happen, at least as of the time we're talking right now on Saturday. We're also going to be talking about what may potentially happen with Josh Rosen. You know, will the Cardinals trade him or will he kind of sit pat? Kind of our thoughts on that one. Still speculation, but it's worth talking about, I think. And then lastly, but certainly not least, well, probably least. And then we're going to talk about pretentious cross-country running with individuals who remain nameless. So first off the bat, we're going to talk about week four in the Alliance of American Football. First off, do you have any thoughts on what happened in week four? Any games that you saw? You know, I didn't spend too much time watching the AAF this, this week, but uh, I'm enjoying Orlando and the fact that like Orlando is legitimately legit. I don't know why I just use legitimately and legit in the same sentence, but hey. So that's a new phrase, legitimate legit? It is now. Salt Lake is just generally bad, so that's a thought there. Birmingham coming up short, you know, I was a little bit surprised with that. And I'm also kind of wondering what's happened to Arizona. Like, they came off the bat flying, and, and the last couple of games, they have really not... They've definitely not been hot shots. They've, you know... Oh, look at you. The uh, the truth is that I think a lot of my thoughts, uh, and this is where I'll kind of subtly plug the, the YouTube channel, and we'll, we'll plug that more at the end, but... I did, uh, I did have another one of my week, thought, week four thoughts in this case about the, the way the games went. I would say a lot of the, what happened with Arizona is that, frankly, their offense is a little bit one-dimensional. So it either really works or it really doesn't. And to be honest, it's been in decline week by week. Since basically the first week, it's gotten progressively worse. They haven't really made a lot of adjustments. And a lot of it is going to come down whether John Wolford, I don't know if he's healthy following the week three injury. And coming back in week four, he really didn't seem to be able to he struggled to generate any kind of offense. Birmingham was something that I kind of saw coming a little bit. And I really did put my money where my mouth was because I basically bet on underdogs. 
I be, to put it into perspective the best way, and I wish I had been a little more aggressive with it. I actually, uh, on my end of it, I actually ended up taking a, um, a wager on three different underdogs in a parlay, and I hit on a 20 to 1 parlay. Which tells you that it was it was built for underdogs, and one of the underdogs was basically selecting selecting Atlanta to stay within fourteen of Arizona. And Which is, the, I mean, when it's that when when the spread is that huge, right? It's why not take the flyer, right? Well, the truth is, you were getting almost two to one odds. Again, your site may vary, but you were getting almost two to one odds to to basically tell Atlanta to stay competitive. And the truth is, Arizona hasn't been getting away from anybody. They've, they've scored a little bit, but like I said, their scoring has been declining week by week. So once I hit that, that was a big deal. And then San Antonio winning, and then Memphis uh, pulling off the upset, hitting it 3-1, to 3-1, to one, and, you know, 2-1. to one. That ended up being a really big, uh, basically a really big parlay. Again, I wish I had been a little more aggressive with it. I, I took a flyer on it and ended up hitting, and I was like, well, it was good. But on the other hand, uh, when it's that big an upset... You're going to start seeing these numbers start to reflect a little bit more that there is a lot more parity in this league right now than people really thought. Orlando right now, I think, is the only team that is legitimately running an offense that can actually be somewhat consistent because I think uh, Steve Spurrier is doing actually a really good job of putting together uh, a game plan for teams. This week, specifically, my big takeaway from the Orlando Apollos game was that I was really impressed with their game. Not because they only scored 20 points, because I think Salt Lake's defense is actually decent. What, what it came out of it, though, was they actually had about the most difficult challenge they've encountered so far defensively, and they're still able to win comfortably. Yeah. That tells and, you that they're really putting together a good game plan. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the game this week between Orlando and Birmingham. Uh, another great, you know, Birmingham has a great defense. So yeah. if, if they win that one, I, I mean, you know, you never know what can happen in a one-off, but I think they're, they're well-positioned for winning the whole thing. And it's nice to see, you know, a team like Memphis finally get a win. So now we at least know no one's going to go over. Yeah, which is good too. I think the I think the biggest difference for Memphis and Atlanta both is that they through various circumstances got to pull put in probably better quarterbacks. I think Aaron Murray is better for Atlanta, and I think and Mettenberger is infinitely better than Hackenberg. Well, that's a move that uh, that Memphis should have made long ago. Yeah, right? they waited too long to make that quarterback change. I genuinely don't know what the attachment was to Hackenberg. Why they kept trying to trot him out there? They had two and a half games to try to generate something, and it just wasn't happening. And at a certain point, Mike Singletary really has to be looking on the field and go, "We're not generating anything. You may as well try somebody else." And Mettenberger has been solid. He's been he's he's been good enough to be a huge improvement over Hackenberg. Aaron Murray, it, the jury's still out, but he's still showing. But he is showing signs that he can be pretty good. And he was great in the SEC. Like his background in Georgia, he he set records over over there. So the truth is, you at least give the guy a shot. If you give Hackenberg that much of a leash, you should give Aaron Murray a little bit of a leash as well. Yeah, I think it also brings up one other point that that a league like this, I think, always does is as a developmental league. Same thing with like AAA baseball or the AHL or anything like that is where do you draw the line between trying to win and trying to develop players? Because your league exists to develop players, but how much can you do that at the expense of your team succeeding, right? Because you still need to get draw advertising dollars. You still need to get butts in the seats. You obviously, for a team morale point of view, you also want to try and win, so it's like, where is that line exactly between developing, right? Somebody like like uh, Hackenberg, for, you know, and saying like, hey, let's give him a whole season and see how much we can actually develop this player. Or, you know what? 
he ain't doing it. I don't think he's going to do it. Let's bring in the other guy because we can develop him better, and he gives us a chance to win. I think from a development standpoint, your point's fair. I think the development standpoint argument, though, loses a little bit of steam when it's none of these guys are like 20-year veterans on their last legs being thrown out there. It's not like we have any 35-year-old quarterbacks that are taking one last shot at trying to get into the NFL. Not the moment. Right now, right now, most of those, most of the quarterbacks they have are pretty young, relatively speaking. They still got theoretically time to make one more crack at, the, at an NFL roster. So really, I would take whatever the best quarterback is and try to develop that one, because if one of them's simply not showing it, there's there's there was something missing in their game that got that prevented them from continuing to play at the NFL level for some reason. There was something missing. The idea that you can run them out there and they can struggle at this level, which isn't all the way up at the NFL level, they, they don't need to dominate, but they need to at least look competent. And the problem was Hagenberg didn't even look competent. The whole point that I made, so the for the Birmingham example, I saw some potential in Louis Perez, but I've also seen regression every single week. Like, it's gotten worse. He's starting to make dumb throws. And up to this point, he hasn't been fully punished for those dumb throws because they've been dropped instead of being intercepted. As soon as they start being intercepted, it starts looking progressively worse. In terms of Trent Richardson on the other on the other side of the offense, averaging under two yards per game in the last game. Under two yards per carry. Yeah, under two yards per carry in the last game was terrible. It's uh, it's it's inexcusable. The fact that he's been getting touchdowns whenever they get close enough to the end zone, basically whenever they get lucky enough to get close enough, is great and all, but it's it's misleading. He's had four games and he's averaging forty yards a game, for four games. That's not great. And he hasn't, and it's not as though the uh, he hasn't gotten carries. The reality is he just can't create any holes for himself, and he can't get away from anybody. So he can basically get through the first hit, but then he doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. And the thing is, he's been in the NFL, so he should know how to do this, and he should be able to develop something on his own. It's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens as far as that's concerned. But Birmingham's offense, frankly, is terrible. And if they can't improve that, it doesn't matter that their defense, their defense will keep them in the game and keep them from getting embarrassed. But they won't prevent them. They won't help them unless the defense starts scoring points for them, basically. Right. So we'll see how that. Plays and if the out. defense can do that, then all bets are off. Sure. They're they're gonna have to go with uh, they're gonna have to go with the two thousand Ravens uh, technique. And I don't know if Ray Lewis is coming out of uh, is coming out of Birmingham right now. So real quick, the the games coming up for this week, as Dave mentioned, we're gonna have Orlando Apollos at four and zero taking on the Birmingham Iron, who despite their defeat last week are three and one. Still the two best teams in the league overall. Uh, in terms of record-wise, Salt Lake will be taking on San Diego. San Diego really doesn't look good. And really, unfortunately for San Diego, one point that I should make is that Philip Nelson, who looked really good. I like Philip Nelson with that team. Uh, he is basically out for the season. Uh, that was the that was the last update from his injury. I think it was collarbone, if, if memory serves me. So that's really unfortunate for San Diego because they were really getting some momentum going between uh, him. And they were showing some really... Mike Marks seemed to be finding ways to start to develop that offense was starting to show some promise on the sunday games we're gonna have memphis taking on atlanta originally both teams winless but now they each have one win so now they're both looking to try to get two wins in a row get to two and three and start trying to put themselves back into contention and then uh, the sunday nighter is going to be san antonio taking on the arizona hot shots both teams really need the win to get back some momentum san antonio did win the game so which is good for them but logan woodside hasn't looked great and arizona has been struggling a lot so John Wolford really is going to have to step up his game. And if he's still injured, then that's going to be a problem for them. They're going to have to develop some kind of uh, offensive chemistry somewhere on the field. So that's week four and then uh, looking forward a little bit to week five. So now let's talk about some National Football League. First, speculation time. Woohoo! Yes, it is time to discuss. You are the Arizona Cardinals, David Turnbull. Now you can draft Kyler Murray in the first round. And then you get to get rid of... 
a top 10 draft pick in the quarterback position from last season, what do you do? It's tough. Honestly, it's tough. I think if you're Arizona... It's really not three, but go on. Well, you know, I, I think I think you you draft Kyler Murray. I that, think you take the flyer. I think... I understand, the, I understand the logic behind it, but I think... Let me put it to this way. Strategically, this is my problem with it. Uh, whether you think Kyler Murray is the answer or not, if you legitimately think Kyler Murray is the answer at, you know, 5'10", basically maybe 200 pounds, if you think he can take the pounding as an NFL quarterback and you think he can do enough... Bear in mind that Josh Rosen may not end up being a great NFL quarterback, but the Arizona Cardinals' offensive line was historically bad. They were frankly terrible. Sam Bradford started last season. Now, Sam Bradford's not a superstar, but he looked, he looked god-awful. And then Josh Rosen looked god-awful. So my sample size last season tells me anybody behind center would have looked awful last year. Does that, does that mean that Josh Rosen is the answer long-term? No. But as a general manager, though, you were basically hitching your wagon to Kyler Murray because what you're saying is, oh, last season we made a mistake. You traded up to get Josh Rosen. You're the general manager. This was your decision. So now you're basically saying after one season that you screwed. Oh, oh, last year, oh, you know what? That was We made a mistake. What we meant to do was to draft a quarterback this year. No, that's a sign of a bad organization. That's basically you you basically giving up on your own. So what happens if Kyler Murray struggles? Are you going to draft another quarterback next year? Like it's you, well, you, you might, won't be knows? around to do it. No, you, fair you, enough. You, you fair won't enough. be around. As a GM, you're, you're going to get fired. Correct. But there's also the possibility that if you're really seriously considering getting like trading Josh Rosen at this point, then maybe they did see something last year that really put them off. Maybe it wasn't necessarily on a field. It could be an off-field thing. Again, this is just speculation. But if you're if you're that convinced, if you do get rid of him, that you should, then I think it's more it's more than, you know, a bad offensive line, right? Otherwise, this makes no sense. I think the Cliff Kingsbury Cliff Kingsbury easy for me to say. I think that factor has to be weighed in as well because I think he I think he wants to play with Kyler Murray. I think he believes that he suits the style of coaching that he wants to do, which is fine. You can take that input into consideration. Here's the thing. I don't have an issue with them necessarily doing it. I don't agree with it because I don't think it's going to turn out the way they think. This could potentially be a great thing for Josh Rosen because the Cardinals are a terrible team. So the truth is, if he gets traded to, let's say it plays out. They draft Kyler Murray and they decide to trade Josh Rosen out for a draft pick or something. Well, right now, Josh Rosen's value is relatively low. You know, he didn't have a good season. So some of the shine is off of that. And then the Cardinals already ate the original signing bonus and all that. So he's, and he's still on a rookie contract. So for somebody else who frankly doesn't have a good quarterback at all, that's a flyer you can take. Even if you're not sure 100%, like the, the risk is relatively low for the team trading for him. If you get a draft, now if it turns out that Josh Rosen is actually a decent quarterback and now you've put a chip on his shoulder, he could potentially punish you for the next 10 years for your, for your crass mistake. Well, as, as a person who's not a fan of Arizona specifically, that would entertain me too. Yeah, but again, it's not a smart business model. It's it's not because you're basically you really are taking a lot of the risk because if you draft Kyler Murray, trade Josh Rosen, Josh Rosen even is a serviceable NFL quarterback. If Kyler Murray is anything less than that, you basically look a complete moron. Like you've done effectively nothing, and you get to look at the this play out from the unemployment line. So we'll we'll see kind of how that plays out. But that is interesting. The NFL has this week. I would say the NFL has thrown out some interesting storylines. So to that degree, let's talk about the current melodrama that is Antonio Brown. Oh, such great melodrama. It's beautiful. Honestly, I think I think what you need to do if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers is just make the trade official and don't make any announcement whatsoever until the trade's happened. 
So the first day you're out of the trade, just get rid of him. Unload him. Here you go. It's done. And you announce the trade is finished. Because this whole thing with him going to Buffalo, so it leaks that, you know, they, they have a deal in place, in principle anyway, with, with Buffalo. And then Antonio Brown sinks it himself, right? With his, his comments about how he's not going to play in Buffalo and, 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 and the city of Buffalo and whatever. And I mean... Yes, Buffalo has some issues. It's cold. It, there's winter, and you know we have frozen watching those games before. But Buffalo is close to sunny, scenic Tonawanda. True. Like I'm just saying, shout out to the people of Tonawanda. And um, there's a, there's a story about that that'll be covered another day. But sunny, scenic Tonawanda, Dave. How can you not love being near sunny, scenic Tonawanda? Hey, you know what? There's also evidence of some really famous people, some really good players who didn't want to go to Buffalo and turned out to love it. See Jim Kelly. Yeah. No, the reality is this. Here's, uh, here's the thing. From Antonio Brown, so I have two minds of this. So the truth is the trade didn't happen. Just so we're clear, the trade did not happen. It's interesting, though, because it plays into the issue that Antonio Brown has effectively created for himself. Antonio Brown is not the first player to want to be traded ever. No, not even by a long shot. The truth is, though, there's nothing wrong necessarily with wanting to be traded. The problem is wanting to be traded one year after you signed a four-year deal. And also, well, it's, somehow, it's always about how you go about it, too. Yes. Right? Where you, you basically take yourself out of the last game of the season, and then you're just trashing everybody on Twitter and social media. And, and you know what I mean? Like, if I'm an NFL team right now, I don't want him. I don't want him on my team. I know he's a great player, right? But as a Saints, I don't want the Saints to sign him mm-hmm. because he's too much of a distraction. And what he's doing right now is he's taking his own trade value down. Right, so those teams that maybe want to pick him up because he's, you know, an elite player, aren't going to do it because it's they don't really need to. Where you're you're going to end up having to go to a team that sucks like Buffalo if you don't want to play with Pittsburgh because otherwise you're just gonna they're not gonna Pittsburgh isn't gonna play him next year if if the no trade happens he's not playing for Pittsburgh next year so he they're just gonna fine him for not playing or something. Yeah. I think the issue runs the issue you run into. So first is that component of it that we're talking about here. The second component of it, from my standpoint, is this: Antonio Brown. I think he decided to play checkers when he should have been playing chess. Like somehow he's he, maybe he's playing mahjong. Like I don't know. I don't know what he's trying to play. Like he's playing a game that's wrong for whatever his objective is. You want to get traded? Fine. You're not the first person to ever be in that situation. You go to the team and you tell them you want to trade. Him. But then you don't go on social media every three seconds. Ba- you basically shut up. Like if I was advising him, my, my objective would be like, listen, the best thing for you to do right now is to shut up. Your job is not to antagonize Pittsburgh and make them dig in their heel. They basically left Anto- Le'Veon Bell as an asset on the shelf for an entire season rather than trade him away for something out of sheer stubbornness. As far as the, the Antonio Brown contract situation is concerned, what he's done, though, is other teams are going to look at him. I'm sure someone is desperate enough to make that deal. Basically, if the price falls down enough, they're not going to get a first-round draft pick. They may not get a second-round draft pick. If if it drops down to maybe a third-round draft pick, someone may be desperate enough to take a flyer on him anyway. But there's two things you have to bear in mind. Desperate teams tend to be bad teams. So now let's say Antonio Brown finds a team that he's willing to sign with. The team then has to agree to basically restructure his contract. Well, the truth is, a lot. If you're a lot of the teams, if you're if you have any sense at all, why on earth would I restructure my contract with you? You agreed to the contract in the first place. Why didn't you just take a one-year contract then? If you if you wanted to be a free agent again right away, take a one-year deal. You agree to a four-year deal. You're you're like, oh, the guaranteed money's run out. That's not my problem. And the thing is, if you play on the field, 
it's not as though he's on a rookie contract. His contract is fairly high. I don't know if he's the highest paid player, uh, running back, uh, sorry, wide receiver in the NFL, but he's got to be up there. Oh, for he's sure. got to be close. So basically, all he has to do is go on the field and play. Now, you say it's not guaranteed money, 100%. But you agreed to those terms. When Kirk Cousins signed his deal, I think most reasonable people think that Kirk Cousins overpaid. But Kirk Cousins' deal was actually a little bit less than what the market was for a quote-unquote high-end quarterback because he took more guaranteed money. His, the thing about his deal is that a lot of it's guaranteed, which is unique in terms of uh, NFL contracts. Well, if Antonio Brown wanted to set a precedent, he could have taken lower per year but made it all guaranteed. They might have been able to work out a deal like that. But he wanted the maximum dollar, the flashy number, and the cap hits high. So if you're a team, you have to then give the Pittsburgh Steelers something where you really don't want to because you're taking all the risk. And then you have to try to see if you can negotiate a deal with Mr. Big Chest, you know, uh, who's basically going to mouth off at every turn. And if he's not happy, and if the team is mediocre, even if the team's not terrible, if the team's mediocre, you probably have a mediocre quarterback. Because if you're a mediocre team, you have a mediocre quarterback, more likely than not. Well, his statistics were compiled with Ben Roethlisberger throwing to him. Ben Roethlisberger is probably a jerk. By all accounts, he's not a great teammate. He's not a great leader. He's none of those things. But he's a good quarterback. And he has won a Super Bowl. Yeah, but he knows how to, but he knows how to play quarterback. He's won two Super Bowls. And he's been to three. So the thing is, you can't say that he can't play. He can still throw the football. He's a, and the, the whole thing is, like, he's a diva. Yeah, you know who else was a diva? Brett Favre. And you dealt with it. Brett Favre held the, held the team hostage. Oh, I'm going to retire. Oh, never mind. I don't want to retire. All right, trade me. Like, this stuff happens. It's, it's, it's part of the deal. But in, in one of those salient points that has been made a couple of times when I've been listening to the talking heads talk about it is Antonio Brown wants to be a quarterback, but he's not a quarterback. He plays a dependent position that relies on a quarterback, and he resents that a quarterback is being treated better than him. But the problem is the quarterback, to be blunt, is more important than you. Of course. It's, the most important position on the team. It's just reality. Because if you have a terrible quarterback, the greatest wide receiver in the world is not going to overcome it. Ask Larry Fitzgerald who's been a top-tier great wide receiver for a long time and had a smorgasbord of terrible quarterbacks to the point that Larry Fitzgerald specifically, when asked about Antonio Brown, said, you might want, you did, you, maybe you shouldn't have done it that way, basically, I'm paraphrasing, because you don't know how good you have it. Larry Fitzgerald has no reason to say anything, but at the same time, he's looking at his own situation and going, I'm going to have a Hall of Fame career, and I've only had a handful of good to decent quarterbacks for brief periods of that time. Yeah, like Larry Fitzgerald is a smart guy. Yeah, like he's a really intelligent guy, yeah. and and he knows, cause cause he knows the the line, right? And he's the opposite because he he produced while having a fairly good attitude. Like people actually like Larry Fitz. If Larry Fitzgerald was on the market right now, teams would give up give up for Schrader. Oh, for sure. And th- th- there would be no issue. And the th- and the truth is, Larry Fitzgerald has been extremely loyal to Arizona, probably to his own detriment. I agreed. But the thing is, people will respect him for that by the end of the day. And we go back to. Now, here's a question for you to finish this topic off. It's kind of going back to the wide receiver thing. Have you given any thought to uh, what I asked you a couple of weeks back about best wide receiver on a Super Bowl winning team? Uh, some, but but it's hard. It's actually to go back. Like, I still think I may be in the Jerry Rice category. I went into Pro Football Reference, and the be- I, I found wide receivers that were good on different teams. You were, or they talking, had you were talking elite, years. though. You are saying elite I was wide saying elite. receiver. Probably the closest I came up with was Victor Cruz in one of the Giants ones because he had 1,500 yards receiving that year. But he was third in receiving. I think Megatron was first. But in that era, Megatron was like the elite wide receiver of that's, that era. That's Calvin Johnson of the Detroit Lions for those of you who yeah. don't understand what that means. Yeah, but that's it. So the, the thing is, that, so and the Victor Cruz was a great year. 1,500 yards receiving is, is phenomenal. But it was one time. 
I think the next year he also had a thousand yards receiving, and then he kind of dropped off. Yeah. So it, it's like yes. So I think there have been a few guys who have had one-off great seasons, but I went and looked, and it was like no. Even a bunch of the New England years, we know New England really, outside of the Randy Moss year, really hasn't had elite wide receivers. And he wasn't really that elite in terms of where he was in his career when he was playing with New England either. He wasn't before he got to New England, but I don't know if you remember, he had 20 touchdown receptions in that New England year. He was breaking offensive records because the combination of him and Tom Brady worked. And the thing is, Randy Moss still had gas left in the tank. He just wasn't motivated to use the gas tank. Well, in New England, he had a shot at a Super Bowl. He used the gas tank. And for that first season, he was lighting. That's where Brady got 50 touchdowns. 20 of them went to Randy Moss. Yeah. So, so it's like he was lighting up scoreboards everywhere. So the reality is elite wide receivers do not grow on trees. If you're a team who has terrible wide receiving, then for you, maybe it makes sense looking at an Antonio Brown. But the truth is, if you have even decent wide receivers who can get open, or maybe all-time greats like Julian Edelman, as long as you have some kind of a receiver that can get open, it doesn't matter. Because if your quarterback is elite or very good, they can work with that. You don't need an elite. A great, great teams, legitimately great teams, do not need an elite wide receiver. It's a luxury. It's something nice to have. That's why I think the Antonio Brown thing is interesting because it's like, well, other than terrible teams, who would want you? None of the other ones who are any good are going to want to upset the apple cart. When, if they're legitimately a Super Bowl contender, are they going to want to deal with your attitude? And are they going to want to restructure? Because if you're a Super Bowl contender, you're probably running close to the cap. Are you going to want to... Do I want to lose maybe players on defense or other offensive players in order to make room in the cap to fit you, Mr. Big Chess, and your big contract yeah, with no. your guaranteed money? No, I'm like, don't. you take uh, one of the names that gets thrown out here during this situation is like, you know, all the New England Patriots are like, you think Bill Belichick's going to give a wide receiver $20 million? Absolutely not. And, not and, and guaranteed money? He's like, no, thank you. Pass on that. You know, at that point, you're going to have to give me draft picks to take them because there's absolutely no, there's absolutely no way. So like I said, a good team or a great team, a contending team who's close to the cap, that doesn't make sense. Go to Buffalo, Antonio. You might as well. Because maybe they'll at least think about it. All right. So that was, uh, that was uh, the Antonio Brown uh, melodrama. Will give us, I think, some amusement until finally the signing happens. But that's enough Antonio Brown talk, I think, for now. Are you satisfied that we have covered our Ant- Antonio Kosha? I am, I am satisfied, yes. Yes. All right. At last, let us talk about... Uh, all right, moving on to the main topic. All right, all right. All right, it's time for Pretentious Cross-Country Running Report with Dave Turnbull. Hey, so here's here's my thing, and I've had a lot of thoughts on this this week. So the CONCACAF Champions League entered its next phase this week. So you have now eight teams left, four matches, uh, two legs each as, as before. So you have four MLS teams. You have Houston Dynamo, Atlanta United... New York Red Bulls and Sporting Kansas City left in it, which is you know so it's for and talking about from a league perspective for MLS, which is good. Every single one of those teams lost, every single one, and they all lost to a team. Bad. It is because here's the thing. Let me give you the scores first. Let me get so. Houston lost to Tigres from Mexico two nil. Okay, two nil. That's like losing a hundred to nothing in a real sport. My God. KC lost 2-1 to Independiente from Panama. P- feel free to wave the flag, as he is doing right now. Okay. Monterey beat Atlanta 3-0, and San Saguna beat Red Bull, who went to the semifinals last year, 2-0. So here's my point is, and I, be- I listened to some 
MLS talk, mostly TFC related because obviously we're in the Toronto market and, and I support that team, but some other stuff too. And it's like... Everyone... Just out of curiosity, was the MLS talk you and another guy in an alley? No. Okay. Just want to make sure. The echo makes it sound like more people. I'm just throwing that out there so I have an idea for you. Go on. But the point is, is that MLS thinks, you know, we've taken these great strides as a league and they have taken strides. The league started in 1996. Right, but they, I, I honestly feel like if they don't give a shit about this tournament, they don't seem to really care. Except when somebody says, "Well, you know what? The Mexican league's better than MLS," and they're like, "No, no, no." Yes, the Mexican league is better than MLS because every time this tournament has happened in the current format, a Mexican team has won. Right, and if you want your league to be respected internationally to some degree, like more than just like we notice it, and yeah, you have some good players then you need to take this tournament seriously and you need to actually start winning it. it. What the league has done right now, it's just not good enough. And it seems like the league itself and people around the league, other than a few people who follow it, like Alexi Lawless, who I respect as a former U.S. defender, national defender, they don't care. They don't seem it's a big deal. Well, you know what? You should care. Because it's, it's like if you were a Major League Baseball team. So let's say you were – give me a team, Carlos. Pick a team. Detroit Tigers. Okay, so if you were the Detroit Tigers – and, it, and you won, every year you won or came close to winning the American League. But you never won the World Series. You didn't come close to winning the World Series. But you're like, you know what, we're pretty good because we make the, right? As a Detroit Tigers fan, are you going to be like, guys, that's not good enough. You have to win the World Series. You, to be considered good, really good, you have to win that. Winning the American League, ask Texas Rangers, a couple of years in a row or ask the Dodgers for winning the Nats, it's not good enough. The fans demand better, right? It's and if you were a league, I like that. I like that his passion kicks up. Like I don't know if you've noticed it. If you've listened to the last couple of podcasts, like a lot of things will happen. Some of his teams, it's like, oh yeah, that's disappointing, whatever. But it's like Concacaf Champions League. Ah, well, because because it's it's the league, and they think they're better than they are, right? It's like the if okay. Really, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let go, me let me finish. Go. So it's like if you were, well, um, the baseball league in Japan. Okay. There's a couple, but yeah. So what, like Pacific League would be one. What's, or, what's the baseball league in Japan? Remind me. There's, the a, there's a couple of different ones. No, there's a big one. Um, like Nippon, like, I believe. Well, yeah, me, is that what Nippon let, Professional let me tell Baseball? You, keep talking. But it's oh, a point. Okay. The point is like, if you're that league and you think you're like the best league ever, okay, then you would have to beat on a semi-regular basis. You would have to beat an MLB team. Now I know they they don't play like that. Right? Nippon Professional Baseball yeah. is one of them. But if you thought you were Nippon Professional Baseball, we're the greatest sports baseball league in the world. Well, one, you got to attract the best players. We all know the best soccer leagues are in Europe. That's not in, 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 in debate. But you got to attract the best players. And if you're in an inter-regional competition, then you should at least stand a chance, right? Could a, 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 a Nippon Professional Baseball team beat an MLB team? Sure. But yeah. if you're able to if set they get, your own, If they get the right matchup, I think they yeah. can compete. But if, especially the Florida Marlins. But if you They're get, the Miami Marlins. Whatever. Check yourself, sir. <sighs> I know. But the point is, is if you think you're a great league, then you, you got to compete against the, the other supposed great league. And the, the point is, it's not good enough for MLS. And, and I wish people around the league would acknowledge that fact, that you got to do better in this tournament. And the league, because of the way it's structured, needs to do more to support those teams to try and get them over that hurdle. Okay, so here's so here's my question. I have now made my point. Sure. So here's my question. The the I, I get I appreciate your passion, but realistically, where does MLS legitimately rank? To me, like as a, as an observer from the outside, 
and I, I'm making assumptions, so okay. correct me if I'm mistaken. We'll do. In my thought process, I believe you like you've got like your premiership, and then you've got like tiers there, and then you've got various international leagues all over Europe and all yep. over and all over you know different parts of the world because soccer is super popular internationally. Yes. So you even there are even some great national leagues in Europe. I would think would be superior at MLS. Hundred percent. So here's the thing, like. Why? Why would I, I get the passion? But at the same time, it's like, how how much are they supposed to take it seriously when it's like realistic? They're like the fourteenth best league. No, no. What I'm saying is, let's if you give it a European example, right? So let's say you're England, the the English uh, Premier League, who thinks they're the best league in the world. Sure. Okay. Uh, and and top to bottom, they probably are the best league in the world. They have a continental championship as well, which is the UEFA Champions League. Okay, UEFA being the governing body of soccer in Europe. England rarely wins that tournament. They have won it. So Manchester United have won it. Liverpool have won it. Other right, Chelsea has won it. But the point is, they yes, they're not winning it all the time, but they're competing. They're getting up there. They're getting to semifinals. Uh, Liverpool was in the final last year. They lost, but they were in the final. Right. So your point but is it's they're a regular thing. They're competitive. Regularly competitive. Exactly. Right now. You as an as a league in North America, like a, a soccer league in North America or Africa or Asia or wherever, you shouldn't be comparing yourself to Europe because they can play. It's more it's more popular over there. The money and the, they can play the players way more money on app, like from top to bottom in your roster. You're gonna yeah, make more I would, money I would think that financially, if you're if you're still at the top of your game, like I remember when David Beckham came and played in MLS and stuff like that. Well, David Beckham was at the tail end of his career, legitimately. Yeah. Now they are attracting some some lesser names that are sort of in the prime of their career that are, are solid players. But the, my point is not that you're trying to compare MLS to Europe because it's, it's not going to happen, right? I mean, maybe it does one day, but it's not going to be in either of our lifetimes. But the point is the, the next step you can compare yourself to is, is the region. And what's the best league in the region? Mexican league, Liga MX, right? And if you're not going to be anywhere close to that league, right? It's, here's my thing. Either compete or stop pretending that you're even close. Look at you. And he rolls up the sleeves. Serious business. Serious, serious business. All right. Let's, let's, let's talk about baseball now. <laughs> All right. So that concludes your pretentious cross-country running report. Okay. So this week we're talking about the National League East. Uh, and By the th- way, this was legitimately difficult. I actually really had to dig in and kind of really look at it. And there were... Uh, there's really only one that I'm very comfortable exactly where I placed them. Yeah, me too. And I, and I feel that so much, there's been a lot of trades, a lot, a lot of movement in this division, which I think makes it really interesting. Yes. I don't think it's going to be as good as, say, like top to bottom as, say, the NL Central. It could be interesting. Uh, I, it's tough because some of these teams, like, looking at what they actually have, it's compelling. I but think the, it's interesting. But the competitiveness uh, may be really good. So here's what I have down as my top to bottom. Although, again, uh, I'm I, I'm pretty close. The, the, the top three are going to be the top three, although maybe not in this order. And the bottom is going to be the bottom. So I have the Braves number one, the Nationals number two, the Phillies number three, the Mets number four, and the Miami Marlins number five. Show some respect on their name. All right. So similar again, same kind of thing. So four and five are the same. I got the Mets four and the Mar- and the Miami Marlins five. The first three are really where you kind of have to debate it and really figure out where you think they're going to fall. So I've got the Washington Nationals winning the division, followed by the Atlanta Braves, followed by the Philadelphia Phillies. Now the thing is, you could make the argument for any for any order you want. 
realistically, there are arguments to be made I for, agree. for those three to go in any sequence that you see fit. Yeah. And it's not a slight, by the way. The gap between the New York Mets and the Miami Marlins right now is huge. So when we're calling them number four, we're not trying to insult them. The truth is they're just shy of those top three teams, but they're, I think they could very well be decent and yeah. still end up in fourth despite being fairly decent. Yeah. All right, so let's, so let's start where, where there's major agreement, and that's the Miami Marlins. I think we both agree they're going to suck, and they're going to suck a lot. As far as I'm concerned, I would be shocked if this team doesn't lose a minimum of 100 games this year. Are you trying to suggest that, uh, as an executive, Derek Jeter is not bringing the winning tradition to uh, Miami? No, well, I, look, I like Derek Jeter. I have a lot of respect for Derek Jeter, but he, he ain't bringing nothing to Miami right now other than a name. At the very least here, we can see, I still need to give him more time. But at some point, I would love to have the debate of who's the worst executive, Michael Jordan or Derek Jeter, for a great player who knew actually, how to do things in his sport, but just sucks as an executive. That would make a, that would actually be a good a good debate, or at I, least I a good a, top five list. Like, I, you know, need, I need another year or two just to like get, just to be, I think we need a little more body of work because Jordan has had more time to screw up. And Isaiah Thomas would be up there too, because frankly, he sucked too, for multiple teams. Go on. All right. So here's some notes I have on the Marlins, although I don't know why I even made notes. Does the notes just say they suck? They suck. They should. Like, it, like they it looks should. like that's what you drew there. So, I mean, they traded away. They keep trading away their best pieces, right? That's the tradition with with Miami is that they Are get. Are you trying to say that Kristen Yellow is decent? Yes. Okay. So they get close to being good or competing, or they've won a couple World Series. They did. And then, and then they just blow it up because they have no money. Um, you know, I've been to two games in Miami, and. You know, you're sitting in a, a maybe maybe if you're lucky a one third full stadium. Anyway, so they traded JT Romoto away, actually within the division, which I think makes that more interesting too. He's he was their catcher. Um, they got Lewis Brinson in the Christian Yelich trade, who's 24 and had horrible <laughs> the year last year. Uh, I I laugh because I was reading one of the, the in the one of the magazines the the MLB preview, and their point was it's like they got Lewis Brinson. He strikes out all the time. Doesn't walk and doesn't hit. So on a plus side, I guess he really has nowhere to go but up. This are year. you trying to say that because it feels like that blurb of a write up is not dissimilar to what we got for the uh, for the, I think the Chicago White Sox. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like even if they lose a hundred games, it can't be worse. It can't be true. Uh, and then let's see what else I had. Um, like their starters are like I feel rather no names: Pablo Lopez, Victor Alcantara, Caleb Smith who had 88 strikeouts in 77 and a third innings. He put uh, his opponents to 220 batting average. He's 27. So, like, maybe he could be good. That's not... Those aren't horrible numbers. Uh, so the only really good thing is they have Starlin Castro at second base, and he's pretty good. And... Yeah, Miami's going to suck. I think, uh, I think really, there isn't a lot that I can add to that. The truth is, and I really didn't want to go player by player, because, frankly, it was embarrassing just looking at it. I think the most compelling storylines are going to be if they're able to actually convert any of their prospects into legitimate major league players. It'll be they're strictly in pretty much a semi-permanent rebuild mode. They're basically trying to develop something, but the problem the question is going to be long-term with with Miami. The question always is not if they can find good players because they have. Historically, they've had good players. It's can you keep good players while in turn getting other good players? Can you actually build a, a full lineup as opposed to component parts that are decent that you eventually trade for other component parts? And can you make people in Miami care? I don't I, – well, I, I think that's a bigger – I think Miami's a terrible – Florida in general is a terrible sports state. 
to be honest, I think the only Florida team that I can say has any consistency is maybe like Florida Gators football or something. And that's I think that's more the college thing. It's like the students are there. The students are interested and engaged. Like in college sports, I'm sure they draw. But in professional sports, the Florida Panthers, no. But they have three NFL teams, Carlos. Three. So anyway, uh, no. Yeah, and the, I would say the only team that really drew at one point was Miami Dolphins because at one point they were good. That's really what it came down. They were great at one stage, going back to the 70s. But that's, you know, and, during, and there was some excitement during the Dan Marino era, but, like, the Dan Marino era has been over for a while. Yeah. I don't see what they can do to recover it at this point, especially in the baseball one, because the Miami Marlins fans that still remain from the Florida Marlins days have been burned too many times. They do have two world championships, which is extremely impressive. That deserves some praise. They actually built two very – that 97 team was legitimately good. But um, and even the the second one, I think it was two thousand three. Yeah, I, I want to say the, I got what I have in so, my mind too. So the reality though is that's extremely two world championships in six years. Two completely different teams. They they weren't even close to each other. The first one got completely dismantled. Yeah, and then they built a second one. Extremely impressive. But the truth is that like any fans that carried over from that era have had basically sixteen years to be burned since then. So even if you build another good team, what confidence do they have that you're going to retain it? You can only burn a fan base so many times where they just stop trusting you. And I think that's where Miami is at this point. It's not so much whether the team is good or bad. They just don't trust you. They think if you ever get good, it's going to become the Montreal Expo thing. If you get good, so you're just going to trade them away. So how am I supposed to get invested as a fan? Hmm. Why, Why am I supposed to be interested if you're just going to betray my trust again? Yeah, exactly. So fair enough. So that's it for Miami Marlins. All right, so let's move on. I'm just going to go... Talk about the, the teams we have most agreement on. So let's go to the Mets next. Uh, I th- the Mets are interesting, and I think interesting for the wrong reasons right now, mostly because of their GM and his his alleged, supposed, their conflict of interest with his agent days and that kind of jazz. As the patron saint of shading is high proof. So they got Robinson Cano and Jed Lowry in the trade. I feel like, you know, that gives them some... Like, they have potentially interesting pieces. So you have those two... Uh, you also have people who are already there who are good, right? Like, you have Syndergaard, but Syndergaard needs to stay healthy. The Cy Award winner. You have Jacob deGrom, who's still a solid pitcher, right? You have Ioannis Cespedes, but the question is, how healthy is he and what, what is full strength for him now? Mm-hmm. Um, Wilson Ramos is a great hitter. And then, if you're looking for something to potentially look forward to, um, you have Brandon Nimmo, who had a 404 on-base percentage last year. And so you're looking at someone who's probably going to score you at least 100 runs. So, like, there's some pieces there. Uh, I just, I don't trust this team to A, stay healthy, and B, be consistent. I think the health is a legitimate concern. Uh, the Robinson Cano pickup is interesting because I think he has something to prove. He had an 80-game suspension last year. So, but when he came back, he hit well. So the thing is that Robinson Cano, I think, is still capable of being a good hitter. That's just an asset in the lineup. Now, that's assuming he can, A, stay healthy. B, doesn't get pinged for another, uh, for another suspension, which would be bad. But I also think he has something to prove. I think, I think he needs to kind of prove, uh, from his standpoint, he's got to prove his worth as far as his capabilities. I think he's got enough pride that if he can play the full season and do what he needs to do, I think he can, be, I think he can provide some good offense for them. Uh, Jacob DeGrom, I don't think he's going to fall that far off right after a Cy Young Award year. He pitched extremely well for a team that wasn't that great. Now, the thing is, if they're even decent and he can kind of pitch it near the level it is, that can only work well in his favor. Noah Syndergaard's health will be a concern if he can actually pitch a full season. 
um, and if he can continue to be effective for a full season. And I will say, uh, you know, if good news for New York Mets fans, uh, you don't have Jose Batista. So at this point, anytime you can get rid of Jose Batista, you know, that's a plus. Yeah. Weird stat of the day. Jose Batista is listed in the baseball reference as being 205 pounds. Are you aware that for the last two seasons he's hit under his weight? Two seasons. It doesn't surprise me. I was not aware of the specific statistic, but it doesn't surprise me. That sucks. Yes. Not a little bit. It, it sucks a lot. Maybe why he's not with the team right now. Yeah. I, I suspect uh, he, he, one thing that I saw somewhere on one of the blogs was uh, that pitching, like, if, if he realizes the, if the, that the end has, in fact, come, he's a candidate to get the one-day contract with the Blue Jays so that they can do the retirement thing. Give him the one-day contract, the ceremonial, and then ship him off. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that'd be a great gesture. Yeah. They kept him They kept him for one year too long, frankly. The Jays should have should never have brought him back. I wish we still had an Encarnacion. I'd rather have him. Fact. Okay, so that's uh, the New York Mets. So, so to be fair, uh, from my end, I won't, again, I won't list off players because I think Dave did a good job sum, summing that up. What it really comes down to is that we think the Mets potentially could be interesting, but interesting right now means maybe about 500 or a little over 500. The problem is in this division with what's left here to talk about, 500 probably won't get the job done. All right, so let's, uh, let's move on to the Phillies then. So we both have them coming in as, as three, but the Phillies interest me because of the moves they've made. Now, we talked a lot last week about Bryce Harper, mm-hmm. so I'm, I don't think we really need to, to go into that as much this week. You know, I think that's going to make... The, I, again, we neither of us like the contract, but I think both of us feel it's going to make Philadelphia better. How well, much it's, better? It's, it's an upgrade. We'll I, think, uh, I think in terms of their outfield, there is, there is some interest there. You know, you also have JT Realmuto, who, as I mentioned previously, was traded from Florida Marlins. He's a great catcher. So Miami Marlins, you really hate this. You really want to keep the Florida going. I can see that. Sorry. And then I like the name better. What can I say? Even though, you know, the alliteration now is, well, I guess what they're going for. Anyway, uh, you have Reese Hoskins, who's 25. And because of Bryce Harper going there and with Andrew McCutcheon as well, he gets to play first base now where he's a lot more comfortable with than being in the outfield. Yeah, I think that's going to be helpful to his development. I think that, exactly. So you have Andrew McCutcheon. At who I said previously now playing out of Philadelphia. Well. 2013 MVP. Yeah. Not that long ago. No. Not far he, I mean, he's still a good player. He's great. Yeah, he's still a great player. Um, then you still have you have decent pitching, right? You have Aaron Nola. You got Jake Arrieta. I'm cool with that. Uh, you have in terms of like a player to watch for. Uh, you got Nick Pavetta who went seven and fourteen with a four point seven seven ERA last year, and then he had 188 strikeouts and 164 innings. So if you're looking at the track record, he's probably going to get a little bit better. So, you know, I, I think the question here is how do all the pieces come together? Because you made a lot of moves and, and it's sort of really, I wouldn't say thrown it all in to go for it all this year, but, you know, you're hoping that your window within a couple of this year, next year, or maybe the year after with a couple more moves or even maybe at the trade deadline, because that always changes things too if, if you can make some good trades in July, depending on where you are. Like, I think Philly's on an upward direction. I'm just not sure with all the pieces coming together that they're going to be better than either the Nationals or the Braves this year. That's fair. I think I think what's going to be interesting about that is with McCutcheon and with Bryce Harper, I think what they're, you know, they're obviously shooting for really trying to ha- add, you know, a more formidable area to their lineup as far as the outfield is concerned. And defensively, I don't think either guy's really a liability. They're both pretty decent, even at this stage. And McCutcheon really hasn't aged out that much. So right now, I think he's still got productive time left in his career, and this could be potentially really good. So you're, you're talking about a 20 to 25 home run guy, combined with Harper, who's supposed to be, he should be, hopefully, a 30, 35, 40 home run guy. So you just added maybe 60 home runs of pop from your outfield. And the team batting average last year was 234. So both those guys, I would expect to hit over that. So realistically, you're improving your team hitting as a whole. 
So that's two spots in your lineup. That's pretty good. Uh, again, as you mentioned, you mentioned the pitching. You've got Jake Arrieta. You've got Aaron Nola. It's not something that's been added to the lineup, but given how aggressive they're being, I would be curious if they would be a player for Dallas Keuchel because he's still out there as a free agent. So if maybe you want to, because right now if Aaron Nola is your, you know, an emerging ace, Jake Arrieta is still solid. Maybe a Dallas Keuchel is, a, is kind of a number two, number three guy. Yeah, I think that's strong. I mean, that's that's part of the problem when you're doing a preview as early as you are, even though, I mean, I don't think to now, like when we started, yes, but but doing now is not that, you know, we're not that far removed from the beginning of the season. Not at all. Sure. And there's still some big names out there that could potentially change things quite drastically depending on if they sign and, and where they sign. Yeah, I think the reason I bring up the name is that it feels like Philadelphia, given that they went so hard for Bryce Harper, it feels like they're being really aggressive. Well, I think it would send I think it would send a strong message to the Philadelphia market if they went and picked up like a Dallas Keuchel. While Dallas Keuchel might not be an ace at the moment, he's still a good like remember what we talked about before. If you're talking to me about a pitching staff, of course I want to have like a top tier ace. But if I've got a great number 2 and a great number 3 or a very solid number 2 no, solid number 3, like I feel great about my chances as far yeah. as uh, as far as, you know, playing well during the regular season, going deep, getting the playoffs. Adding these components that they've got in now, which should improve things, having some good pieces already in place, and being able to potentially pick up a great either number two or number three, depending on where you see them, starter, without having to give up anything but money. If you're Philadelphia, that's not a terrible idea. There's other teams that should think about it as well, but if you're Philly and you're really pushing, you were almost 500 last year. You started strong and faded down the stretch. Hopefully, these other additions mean you won't have that issue this year. But adding another piece to pitching feels like you're kind of going for it. So that's just something to keep in mind that may be a thing, depending on how aggressive they want to be. Yeah. Now, here's the other thing about this division. We're going to go to the Nationals next. And, and here's what I, like, when you look at it, and I think one of the reasons it was hard for us to sort of pick the top three, was, other than the rosters, is the Nationals were first last year, and they went 82 and 80. Woo! So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. They have a great pitching staff. Right, so you have you have Max Scherzer and you have Steven Strasburg. Already. In fairness, I would say they really underperformed last year to their capability to the roster. Like if you look at the roster last year, they really should have played better. Yes, on paper they are not. They were not an eighty-two and eighty-two. Yes, they should have been a lot better than that. Uh, you and and Sanchez as well. But the thing I like and the the move that I really liked was they they got uh, Patrick Corbin from the Diamondbacks. Wait, wait, quick question: Did you say they won the division? I believe so. That's that was right. Atlanta. They won 90 games last year. Did they? Oh, that's right. They did. Sorry. Yeah. But they, they were still, they were still I, th- I think they were still My a playoff bad. team last year. But they... No, you know what? No, they they needed to... No, sorry. No, sorry. Yeah. My apologies. You're thinking of the previous year. Right. Yep. Just wanted to make sure we got that right. Right. Okay. They were so, still better than an 82-win team is the point. Yes. So, yes, they did finish second. And I ha- you have them winning this year. I have them in second. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patrick Corbin from the Diamondbacks. So, he went 11-7 with a 3.15 ERA, 1.05 whip, 246 strikeouts, in 200 innings with the Diamondbacks. It's a strong it's a strong addition. The thing is, the Patrick Corbin acquisition plays into what I just said about the Dallas Keuchel no, thing. That's the, re- that's the reason why I'm wondering, if you're Philadelphia, if you don't consider that acquisition as kind of a countermeasure to the Patrick Corbin move. Yeah, because you definitely, they I would say they definitely have the strongest pitching staff, or starting pitching staff, in the division. But that's why you, that's why you if, you're, if you're doing an arms race inside of your division, and you just see one of your opponents do something like that, like... Patrick and if you're, already spending, if you're already spending stupid money. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Like, you may as well go and attack. If you can get Keiko on, like, a two- or three-year deal, depending on what he's looking for. I don't know yeah. I don't know what his market is for himself. But if he's looking for – if you lock him up for two or three years, 
I feel like Keichel is potentially a little better version of what Corbin is. It just depends. But then that kind of shifts things a little bit back in your favor as well. Yeah. With those numbers in the NL West, which is a tough division. Yeah. I mean, I'm liking, I'm liking that starting pitching staff. The other thing I really like is Juan Soto. So last year, for, uh, 0.406 on base percentage, 0.15 slug, sorry, 0.517 slugging. He's 19. Yeah. There are a lot of people that are saying he's he's better than Harper or going to be better. Than I Harper. think I think the what the consensus right now with Washington is yes they lost Bryce Harper, but they have these really good young players that it's almost like okay we can live with that because the Nationals made a legitimate attempt to resign Harper they offered him a ton of money as well three hundred million for ten years is not an insult it's not a it's not an embarrassment they did they did take a legitimate stab at it but they were probably looking at their coffers and saying. The coffers look pretty good. There's there's some there's some talent here already. Yeah. So I mean I think they're they're gonna be good. It's just a question of does it all come together? I think we both agree they underachieved last year. Yeah. And you know, it depends how much they get over that. So would I be surprised if they won the division? No. But I'm I'm still I'm still sticking with the Braves for that. Yeah, I think what uh, my prediction contingents upon is do they meet their potential? Does Max Scherzer continue to be Max Scherzer? Because he's been great. And last year, he very much, he was, I think he was second in Cy Young voting last year to Jacob DeGrom. So the reality is that if he stays somewhere in that top five Cy Young voting type of level, he had 300 strikeouts last year. I don't expect that. But if he continues down his path that he's been going, I think he's still at or near that level. He's still the ace of the staff. If Strasburg can stay relatively healthy, that's a strong number two because he's, he's capable of being dominant in stretches. And then you add Patrick Corbin as, as a solidifier at number three. You've got a good one, two, three punch in your pitching staff. That's that's looking good. And then you've got all these young players who potentially are developed. And I don't think you I don't think you mentioned Anthony Rendon. I did not. Who's strong. Victor Robles, strong. Like there's some good players on this Washington Nationals. It's one of those things, like, yeah, you lost a, you lost a great player. But you've got all these other great players too. So you were able to reload the coffers almost at the same time as where you can live with it. And you lost a guy within the division, and you're still and and you still feel like you're still strongly in contention anyway. Yeah, like I'm not. If I, I, I wouldn't be super worried about Philadelphia if I was Washington. No, no, like I feel you've made comparable moves. It's sort of one of those points that we talked about: is if you're going to spend all that crazy money, wouldn't you rather get like two, three, maybe even four, depending, very serviceable guys who may end up doing you better? And I think, for example. Patrick Corbin would be would be would be one of those guys. Yeah, that, what it's going to come down to is now that you are technically saving that money, now are you going to if you're in position late in the season during the trade deadline, you can you may have more financial flexibility to be able to make the big move late. You might be able to get that rental to put you over the top whereas Philadelphia may or may not be hamstrung. I don't know what their uh, financial situation is if they feel like so they might be okay with committing big time to one player. That's why I say, like, if they do pull off another move like a Keiko or somebody like that to solidify another area and gain more strength, then it feels more like they're going for it right now as opposed to if they kind of sit back and say, okay, look, we've made a splash. I think we've got the market excited. If we do something this year, awesome. But if not, we're going to reload for more for next year. It'll, it'll kind of depend to see their level of aggression over the next couple of weeks and months is really going to tell me what they plan on doing. But the Nationals probably have a lot of flexibility to be able to decide where they're at as they get closer to that trade deadline. Agreed. So 
I think that I, that's why I say this this little matchup here, I think is going to be kind of an interesting game within the game right now at the top of this division. All right. So then moving on to the Braves, who have done a, a, a couple of interesting things. So I don't know. The more I look at this, the more I think I want to put Washington number one. Now, now you see my thought process on it. Washington's right. interesting. But um, so the, here's some big thing. $23 million for Josh Donaldson for one year. I think it's a good deal for one year. I think I think it's a fair gamble to take. If he's if he's not good, drop him. Yeah. Like leave him for free agency. It's okay. Yeah, uh, you know. Um, but he also takes Johan Camargo's spot, who was playing there last year. Johan Camargo's twenty five. So question as to where is he going to play? But I mean, you st- if if you look at these other guys, you have Ender Inciarte, elite defender, good contact hitter. Freddie Freeman, very solid. Ronald Acuna Jr. also very solid. You got Brian McCann who's going to platoon with a Tyler Flowers, a catcher, uh, who's like, he's being compared to that sort of like the David Ross with the Chicago Cubs kind of guy where he can still play, he can still add to the team, but he's also going to give you that sort of leadership and uh, clubhouse guy as well, which I think is good. The only question, I somewhat question, uh, maybe a little bit more than somewhat, I question their rotation. It's not clear that they have a number one starter. Yeah, that's right? fair. So you have, I don't even know how to say this, Fultonwitz, Newcomb, Tehran, Kevin Gossman, uh, Tuki Toussaint. These aren't names that are jumping off the page at you. I don't think uh, – I think it's interesting because the Atlanta Braves – the Atlanta Braves as a franchise fascinate me because they've managed to do something that seems almost impossible in the modern era. They haven't always been good all the time, but they've had stretches for years. Now, going back to the early 90s where they've been – very good to solid, consistently, year after year. And part of that you can attribute to, you know, that 90s era where they had, you know, Chipper Jones and Greg Maddox and, you know, John Smalls. For some reason, I'm always forgetting the third guy. Tom, Tom Glavin. Glavin. Yeah, Tom Glavin. So you had that three-headed monster in your rotation. You knew that going in. But after, but after those pieces started to go away, after they lost Maddox, then they picked up, I think, Mark Hudson. And Mark Hudson had some serviceable years for him. Yeah, no, they, they've been consistently good. Uh, and you know they only have really in that in, in in our lifetime the the one World Series championship, but they've been there consistently, right? I mean, you'd probably be somewhat frustrated as an Atlanta Braves fan, right? Because you haven't you've only won one World Series, and and when you're when you're winning all the time, obviously you want to go that one step because you know if I was a Miami fan, I I'd trade the Braves in a second. You really are picking on the Miami I am. fans so much. I am. I, 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 to be honest, I like this side of you. Finally, some of my horribleness is rubbing off on you. You're just randomly taking shots. If you start taking unprovoked shots at Tom Brady, it means I finally taught you well. The, 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 there's time for that. There's but plenty I of doubt time. It today. There's plenty of time. But but honestly, like, you know, if you're a fan who wants your team to win and be a consistent level of production, that is the Atlanta Braves, right? They are an example of how to do it and how to do it well. Kind of like St. Louis, in, yeah. in a sense, right? I like, St. Louis has like, won a little more. I like very much what they've done. Part of what's interesting to me, and this is where it fascinates me, is I feel like they almost have fatigue from all that success because it feels like a lot of times their their fans kind of stagnate. Like, they'll come, but they tend to get more excited when the playoffs come because that was, that was a phenomenon you started to notice over time. It's almost like you make the playoffs every year, you take it for granted, which, yeah, exactly. which if you're in a fan base that is like, no, making the playoffs is hard. It's actually not easy, and it's not automatic, but that's the thing. When I look at Atlanta, part of the reason I mention it is because I like to look sometimes back, especially when I think of an Atlanta Braves. And from 91 till 2005, they made the playoffs every year, the only exception being 94 when there was no playoffs. That's a run. Like, that's tremendous. 
And then they were out of the playoffs four years. They made it back to the playoffs. Out of the playoffs a year, made it to the playoffs two years in a row. Out of playoffs for four years, and they got to the playoffs last year. One World Series, yes, but they're always there. And then this, this past season, 90 wins with a team that came out of nowhere. Bunch of young guys and kind of a no-name, to your point, kind of a no-name pitching staff. But the thing is, you can, you can make that work. The pitching staff doesn't have to well, be I full mean, of you, greats. It just has to be full of solid professional yeah. and you players. And we also remember, we have, to, we have to remember, we're talking about a team that won the division last year. Yeah. Right? And, you know, they didn't look great against the Dodgers in the playoffs. But some of the young guys can use that experience and build off of it. But they, yeah. they can become scarier. You know, when, when you're a younger team, you, you can't knock playoff experience. That's the whole thing is that I think from their standpoint, I think Atlanta was thrilled that they got their kind of ahead of schedule. I don't think they anticipated being in the playoffs last year. I think from them, it was like, oh, my goodness, this is exciting. We got here. But now these guys actually got a taste. So now where the question is, okay, do you guys want to come back? Are you willing to do what needs to be done to take that leap forward? And then if, again, if you're Atlanta, if you start getting in a position where in the next year or two they start feeling like consistent contenders, then you can start making those serious moves. Yeah. The you one, can pick up that veteran starter or something. The one thing I see with Atlanta and the one thing I question is I don't really see Atlanta dropping, taking a huge drop-off in any way. The question is, with the moves that Philly has made, with the moves that Washington has made, can they take – they need to take a leap up. They need to take a next step in an upwards direction. And do they have all the pieces that they need to, to do that? Right? I think for sure they're going to compete, and I think they will be better than Philadelphia. The question is, are they better than Washington? Washington underperforms, then for sure. So, you know what? I'm just going to stick, for the record, since it's on the air, I'm going to stick with them as number one, and we'll see what happens at the end. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting kind of how this one plays out. That's why I said this division was interesting to me, because as I started looking through it, I was like, I like a lot of these teams. A lot of these teams interest and fascinate me. And the one point I'll add about the Josh Donaldson thing where I mentioned it is that, again, it feels like a relatively low risk, potentially high reward thing. Josh Donaldson only played 52 games last year. So the question becomes, is he on a downward trend? Technically, yes. But the reality is between 2013 and 2017, he was averaging 33 home runs and 98 RBIs. If he can come back to that average level, $23 $23 million is a lot of money in real world terms, but in baseball terms, if I get a one-year rental for a guy who hits 33 home runs and about 100 RBIs and hits about 280, I accept. Th- these are terms I can live with. Yeah. And that's just an extra bat in the lineup that Atlanta didn't have. No. So, clue, so that's not a bad I think thing. it's worth taking if they're going to spend $23 million on it. Yeah. And if worse comes to worse, if, if you decide then that maybe it's worth it, because he's only turning 33. This is going to be his 33-age season. So I don't feel like he's aged out yet necessarily. No, I don't think so. So the question really is, you know, can he come back for a full season, be healthy, and, you know, return to a little bit of that form? If he can do that, I think that's really, that's only going to help Atlanta's chances at being at the top of this division, potentially. So that's very good. So as far as the National League East, I think that covers the main things. Anything else uh, you want to add that you feel we've maybe left out? No, I think we're good in terms of our analyst preview. Awesome. So next week will be the final MLB preview, a little bit closer to home, the AL East. Basically... Baltimore is going to suck. Toronto is probably going to suck. And Tampa may or may not suck. Well, the Yankees and Red Sox will be pretty good. That's true. So, uh, you know, we, maybe we can do the review in about five minutes. That'd be kind of funny. So hopefully you enjoyed this, ready for it, penultimate episode in our series. I like it. You got to bring like the it. penultimate out there. I, I this pre- was the time. I appreciate it. This I was the time. I appreciate it. So the penultimate episode in our little series previewing the 2019 Major League Baseball season. 
as Dave said, next week will be the final one. We'll do the American League East, which is closest to home. You know, we're not that far from Toronto right now as we speak. We'll take a closer look at it and kind of see these teams again, because obviously we see a lot of them already, but the truth is it's good to look at it again with fresh eyes. So that's really going to be interesting for next week. And then after that, we'll have some fun. Uh, you know, maybe we'll talk a little football. We'll, we'll kind of see how things play out with the early part of the baseball season and what topics we want to talk about going forward from there. Now, we're going to talk about first what we're looking forward to this week, followed by shameless plugs. What are you looking forward to this week? So I would take basically a couple things. Yelling at the screen is something related to CONCACAF. Yes, probably. Uh, But it probably won't be the actual TV screen because they don't air the games in Canada. But what I'm looking forward to actually, right now is about the time I normally start to really actually pay attention to the NBA and the NHL because we're getting closer to the playoffs there. Things are starting to come together. Oh, one one second. Can I stop you there for one second? Sure. I cut it out of last week's. Uh, I cut it out of last week's episode because unfortunately it felt kind of forced at the end because it didn't. It didn't fit in. But we did briefly talk about LeBron James and the Lakers. Since you bring up the NBA, before we go into fully what we're looking forward to, real quick, because it actually fits a little better now that we didn't get all the way to the end. The dumpster fire that is Los Angeles Lakers amuses me. I've actually, I've actually quite enjoyed watching it. And yeah. the semi dumpster fire that is the Boston Celtics has also amused me. Yeah. Right. So I mean, that's the thing. Like now, I'm, I'm paying more attention. I'm watching it. Uh, so that, that always interests me and, and watching those games. So that's good. And then the other thing I'll be looking forward to, uh, is the UEFA Champions League, uh, but only one particular game. I will be interested in watching the Liverpool Bayern Munich game, which is taking place. Uh, I wish I could remember. I think on Wednesday of this week, it's interesting that the aggregate score right now is nil nil. So it'll be interesting. And they're playing in Munich. So I'm very interested to see, uh, what happens with that game. Uh, I'm obviously rooting for Bayern, but We'll see what happens. But other than that, I have nothing really on my on my plate specifically that I'll be tuning into. Maybe something I do end up tuning into can become a topic for next week. But as for right now, that's what I got. How about you, Carlos? What are you looking forward to this coming week? Apart right. from UFC. No, I know. I know yeah. you're going to go to the UFC. We're, always gonna, we're always going to talk a little bit about the UFC. It's a thing. Especially when it's a fight night, which is on TV. You can, you can catch that. I didn't get a chance to catch the last pay-per-view, but uh, I'm going to try to catch a little bit of the replay a little bit later. I, I didn't. The card wasn't strong enough for me to want to pay for it. The Shelling out the 65 bucks is something that I have to always consider a little bit. It's got to be a strong card. But um, I think they had some good fights on there, and it'll be interesting maybe to potentially look at it on the replay because I do have the fight pass, so sometimes I can go back and watch. It's going to be a while before that one comes on, but we'll see if that when that happens. Uh, I'll quickly talk about the UFC card, and then we'll talk about the obvious... Well, let me do the obvious first. Week 5, Alliance of American Football, we're halfway through the season. So this is the midway point of the regular season. So obviously, the matchups we already discussed, we're going to talk about. I am going to watch the games again, and I am going to probably put another video on the YouTube channel. Shameless plugs right at the tail end. I don't know if you... Have you caught any of my previews, uh, my I, recaps I out there? Of course, my friend. Part of it, really, if you hear kind of what we talk about here, we this is a truncated version of it. This is uh, The videos tend to be where I'm able to go directly after the games, usually on the Monday. It gives me a night to think about it and kind of put together my thoughts. And then, since it is a video, I can kind of show you. Usually, I'll take either screen grabs directly from the Alliance of American Football site, just so I can show you the stats, just to make life a little easier. Or sometimes, I'll get in front of the camera directly, and I'll put things on the screen so that you can see for yourselves. We're trying to make that a little bit more interactive. If, by chance, you do catch the video... Love to get your feedback on it. Same as the podcast. Love to get your feedback on it because we're trying to make it a little better all the time. Absolutely. And it's something we can try to do. But I, obviously, the more we hear from you, it'll be easier for us to make those adjustments and make it more watchable or enjoyable for yourselves. So I'll be looking forward to that, obviously, this week, as well as the UFC card, which is going to be headlined by Derek Lewis taking on Junior Dos Santos. 
Derek Lewis, that's going to be kind of interesting. You know, Junior Dos Santos is kind of moving to the tail end of his career a little bit. But Derek Lewis is going to be, I think, kind of an interesting fight. If memory serves me, I'm trying to think if Derek Lewis is the one I'm thinking of. He's really more of a brawler. He's the he's the one who, uh, I th- if memory serves me, in one of his last fights basically looked punched out on his feet and was still able to secure a knockout in a fight he probably should have been knocked out in. And if uh, if I'm right, I'll probably I'll, I'll pull up a clip of a post-fight interview that will probably make you laugh. He, he's an interesting dude, if it's the same Derek Lewis I'm thinking of. But um, the rest of the card is kind of okay. There's some, there's some good fighters on there. Ben Rothwell, you've got, let me see here, Tim Bosch. That's good. Uh, so the good news is this one's one of the ones on free TV. So in Canada, we got that on TSN, and I believe it'll be on ESPN and they're in the United States if that's where you are. So that's another thing to look forward to. Obviously, we've got some NBA on the docket. I can't give you specific games because I kind of tune in, and if there's something compelling, if I can watch the LA Lakers dumpster fire, I kind of do. It's, it's a later game, te- technically, so it's kind of fun to watch. But the Boston Celtics have also been interesting for me for the same reason. I'll see kind of how they round out. And I'm going to watch a little bit of Raptors as we go along slowly as we actually creep into the playoffs because I'll be interested to see now that LeBron James is completely out of the playoffs but also completely out of the Eastern Conference, what they can actually do because this year will be the telling tale whether Kawhi Leonard comes back or not. It doesn't matter. It's going to be you have these components. The East is more takeable than it's been in a long time. The team everybody thought was going to dominate the East is really not. What can you do with it now that you're in that position? You've got the Milwaukee's, you've got the Boston. Toronto's a contender. They're legitimately there. So the question is what they can do against the best of what the East has to offer right now. Yeah. So that'll be an interesting storyline playing forward, especially locally. We'll, we'll sure. have to see no, it's always, it's always worth watching. Very good. So I think other than that, though, you said nothing else that you're looking forward to this week? We're no, good? I'm, I'm good. All right. So let's finish off quickly with shameless plugs. So I already mentioned the YouTube channel. If you're watching or listening on the YouTube channel, well, then you're already here. So then we'd love for you to check out the other videos we have. Like I said, I try to do a weekly review of that week's Alliance of American Football because we've kind of having fun with this league a little bit. It's kind of been enjoyable to have some football this time of year. If there's any other major breaking news story, I was so close. I really wanted the Antonio to Buffalo thing to happen. I was going to fire up the video. I was ready. I was ready, Dave. I was ready. I would, that would have been a good video. And then if, Buff- and then if Buffalo and then, Bu- and then Buffalo and Antonio Brown ruined it for me. We were this close. This close. But if something really interesting happens, then I'll usually fire up the camera and at least opine some thoughts on it. It's a supplement to what we're doing weekly on the podcast because sometimes stuff happens during the week. And if it's a big enough deal, we can't wait until the end of the week. We got enough to talk about as it is, right? Exactly. There's usually enough. We've got that going on. And uh, as far as Instagram is concerned, we are at Unnecessary Podcast. As far as Twitter is concerned, we're at Unnecessary underscore pod. I'm going to try to tweet probably some more heinous hot takes, you know, in addition to our shameless plugs on there as well. We do have a website that we do through Podbean, which is unnecessarypod.podbean.com. If for whatever reason you can't find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, one of those, we're on all of them. So you can pick your podcast app of choice. We should be there. Anything else you want to shamelessly plug? Any other random soccer league in a 14th, fourth world country? Not even third world. Fourth world? Fifth world? No. Fourth dimension? No, I'm good. This is this is the uh, the first March break that I've actually been in the country for three years, so... I'm actually looking forward to actually watching some of the sports this week as opposed to doing other things. Look at you. Very good. Well, then that concludes Episode 7 of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast. For Dave and myself, we thank you for watching and listening. Please comment if you can wherever it's available. We'd love to hear the feedback. Otherwise, we will see you next time.